The Deseret Book Audio Library presents The Jesus We Need to Know A talk by S. Michael Wilcox This talk was recorded in front of a live audience. And now, Michael Wilcox. Jesus gave us an invitation with these words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think that if we know certain things about the Savior, about him as a man, as a personality, his character, not the Savior as a God or a Redeemer, a Creator, an Atoner, but the man himself in his life, in the way he treated people, in his associations, in the examples that he gives us, I think we come to understand a little bit more those three key words in that verse, that life, as he wanted us to live it, would be restful, easy, and light. And as we strive to be more and more like the Savior, our life as we emulate him is going to be, I think, more restful, easier and lighter. I want to just share one other quick thought out of C.S. Lewis. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. I don't think I've ever given a talk that I didn't quote him, so I might as well get it over right now. About the Savior and the more we learn about him, again, as an individual, as a man, not so much as a god. In the Chronicles of Narnia and Prince Caspian, when the children go back into Narnia for the second time, and they meet Aslan. Aslan is the Christ character. We have this little interchange. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I think that is true of the Savior, at least in my life. The more I've learned about him, the more I've read, pondered, tried to visualize his life, the greater he becomes to me. Now, we cannot cover all of his perfections and characteristics and attributes uh, this morning, all the qualities I would love to cover. But uh, I would like to share with you some of those moments in his life that have been very restful and burden-easing and light in my particular life and hope that it will be of value to you also. Jesus as an individual, as a man, was accepting. And because of his accepting nature of people, they, they came to him. Even those who were sinful, publicans, uh, harlots, sinners, they would come to him because they sensed in him an accepting nature. Uh, let me give you an example that I really love. It's the story of the woman with the issue of blood. If we put uh, two of the accounts together, uh, Mark's account and Luke's account, I'm going I'm to weave those two accounts it gives us a little more, a little fuller understanding. 
A certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years and had suffered many things and many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, he felt strength go out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? Now why doesn't this woman come out and raise her hand and say, I did, and I'm healed, thank you very much. When we jump to Luke's account of that same, I was reading from Mark's, when Jesus said, who touched me, the next three words are, when all denied. So he's looking, he's trying to find, who touched me? They're all denying. Jesus said, somebody had touched me. I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. I'm jumping back to Mark. And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. So he's looking for, you can picture yourself in that crowd and he's looking for his eyes. He's looking at faces. He's trying to find her. When the woman saw that she was not hid, that's back to Luke's account. She's hiding. Now, why is she hiding? Why doesn't she say? Because she feels she's done something wrong. Her particular problem, an issue of blood, under the law of Moses, made her unclean. She's had it 12 years. She's been unclean 12 years. In Leviticus, this is the rule that governed those with these kinds of problems. If a woman have an issue of blood, whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth anything that she sat upon shall be unclean. And if a woman have an issue of blood many days, which is this woman's problem, many years, she shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth those things that she lieth or sitteth upon shall be unclean. Now, there were certain ceremonies that they had to do then to cleanse themselves. So even though we tell this story as a great example of faith, I just, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. But the reason that she's doing that is in her mind, if he touches me, he's a great rabbi, a great master, that will render him unclean. How can I ask him to do that? That's why sometimes the lepers in the ten leper story said they stood afar off. They're unclean. But maybe if I touch just his clothes and not a lot, just, just one little tiny finger on the hem of his garment, maybe I won't make him unclean. Can you see your thinking? Great faith, without question, great faith. But also... An anxiety that, because of her problem, she can't touch him and he can't touch her. He looked round about to see her that had done this thing. And finally, you see that moment when their eyes meet, right? I can picture that. And he's looking at her. She's tried to hide. He's looking at her. He knows, and she knows he knows. 
And then we read these words. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Be whole of thy plague. Now the two words that have always resonated in my heart and have helped me in different moments in my life are those words, fearing and trembling. Because many times in our lives we go before the Savior, the Lord, fearing and trembling, thinking maybe we've done something that he's not pleased with. Um, Jesus was accepting. And many of the times when we fear and tremble because we feel perhaps we've done something wrong, that we've done nothing wrong, we would find acceptance. I think we have fearing and trembling moments too much. We have assurance that he is accepting of us. Jesus uh, felt the sorrows and the griefs of people. Now, when I say he felt them, I mean he felt them. He not only knew them and understood them, he felt them at a very deep level of empathy. Let me give you an example or two. When the Savior was asked by Mary and Martha to return from across the Jordan River up to Bethany because Lazarus was sick, and Jesus came up to Bethany, it was dangerous for him. There was a lot of hostility in Jerusalem, and Bethany's just over the hill from Jerusalem. So Mary and Martha both go out to meet him because Lazarus is already dead. Both of these women that the Savior loved said the same thing to him. Master, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. We're opening, we're getting a window open into the Savior's heart in those words. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the two shortest, the single shortest verse in scripture, two words, you all have them memorized. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, behold, how he loved him. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. In uh, Alma chapter 7, Alma used six words to describe what Jesus wanted to know in, in human experience because he went through it himself. According to the flesh is the expression that Alma uses. Jesus wanted to know according to the flesh these six experiences. Pains, afflictions, temptations of every kind, sicknesses, infirmities, and death. That we might say is life at its most challenging. Now, the Savior also knew life at its very best, laughter, joy, but he knew life at the affliction, pain, sickness, infirmity level. And here are two women weeping. Now, the remarkable thing about Jesus wept and groaned in himself is that he knew before he ever left the Jordan River to go up to Bethany what he was going to do. This was not going to be a miracle of compassion. He knew what he was going to do. This was to be a sign of his power over death. 
So he knew that in a few minutes, all those tears were going to be turned to joy and celebration and laughter. The kind that comes after great grief is released. He knew within a few minutes, these tears would be dried. But he still wept. And he still groaned in himself at their sorrow. He not only understands and knows our sorrows, he feels them. And at a groaning in himself, weeping level. Now you see a similar situation with Mary Magdalene. I know that most really important things are planned that happen spiritually. And the decision as to who should be the very first to see the resurrected Savior. There's something inside of me that likes to see a council in heaven saying, who should be the first to see the resurrected Savior? And a decision is made, and they decide, Mary Magdalene, that the most appropriate person would be a woman. There's something profound and wonderful about a decided counsel about who should see them. But there's another part of me that very much wants that to be a spontaneous moment. And if I, I believe it was a spontaneous moment. It's resurrection morning. Mary has been to the grave. The stone is rolled away. Jesus is gone. She runs back to get John and Peter. They run back to the tomb. They look in and they walk away in reflection. And Mary stays there and she looks again in the tomb. A very human moment almost to see, is he really gone? And the angels are there, and they say to her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Now, I've never been able to say Mary in the proper tenderness that I think it was stated. But there was something in the way he said that, her name, that she knew it was him. She turned herself and said, Rabboni which is to say, Master. I've never been able to say that word with the proper tenderness and joy that I think she would have said on that moment. Now, I know, again, that maybe that was a decided thing, but somehow I think it was not a decided formal thing. Jesus has to go and make the most important priesthood report ever made to the Father. Atonement, resurrection, preaching of the gospel of the spirit world. That's a pretty good priesthood report. But a woman is weeping. And I don't think he can leave without comforting her. It wasn't in his nature to leave without comforting her. And so he stays just long enough. Jesus saith unto her, Joseph Smith makes a profound change. He changes one word in this story. It's a good change. It matches the Greek reading. Jesus saith unto her, Hold me not, instead of touch me not. Hold me not. 
For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Hold me not. I assume they embraced his feet, his hand, that she touched him. The other women hold him by the feet. We read in one of the other Gospels. Hold me not, meaning don't detain me, Mary. I have to go to my father. Almost as if, had she wished, she could have detained him. As the Nephites do in Third Nephi, when they just look at Jesus and don't want him to go. And he doesn't look at his watch and say, I got a big agenda. I got to go visit the Lost Ten Tribes. He says, you want me to stay? I will stay. Hold me not. Jesus felt our pains more than just knew and understood them. He felt them. He will fill our insufficiencies. Sometimes there are principles in the scriptures that are so important that the Lord wants us to get those ideas. And so he'll put it in different places. He'll say, I'm going to put one of these kind of stories in the Old Testament. I'll put one in the Book of Mormon. I'll put a couple in the New Testament. I'll put one over here in the Doctrine and Covenants because I want you to understand that when you don't feel you have enough of whatever it is you need, I will multiply it, make it sufficient, and give you beyond. Most scriptures are extreme stories. They're stories at the extreme. They're at the extreme so they can cover everything less than that story. So that whatever he did for them in a dramatic, major way, he will do for you and I also. So when I was little, I used to wish I could see Red Sea split and fire called from heaven and the blind made to see and lepers healed. And I never saw one of those things. And I wondered why they weren't still happening. And it took me quite a while to realize they still are happening. They just happen on a spiritual level. That those dramatic stories, splitting the Red Sea was the Savior's way of saying, God's way of saying, whenever there are barriers that bar your way to progression, I will make a path for you to move forward. I've seen God split the Red Sea in my life and in others' life many times. The leper came to Jesus and said to him, Master, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he said, I will, be thou clean. And I come to him, and I say to him, Master, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Spiritually. And he says, I will be thou clean. So all these great miraculous stories we see, we need to understand that they have a meaning for us, that what he did for them, he will do for us. So we go to the stories of filling insufficiencies. Two times he feeds many people from a little bit of bread, right? Now there is a pattern in these stories, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. The pattern is, number one, you have a lack, an insufficiency. You don't have enough of something. In this case, it is bread. Number two, you go to someone for help, to God, to the Savior. We'll look at a story here, to a prophet, Elisha. You go for help. Number three, and this is an important one. You are always asked to bring what you have. Now, it's only in Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, that you get that. 
The other Gospels leave that very important point out. In Mark's account, he answered and said unto his disciples, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? We don't have sufficient. He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they said, Five and two fishes. In the account of the feeding of the four thousand, his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. So the third aspect is you're always asked what you have. Number four in the pattern, God multiplies it and makes it sufficient for you. And then number five, because he's gracious and good as a as part of his character, you always get beyond the need. He multiplies it and beyond. They take up 12 baskets after the feeding of the 5,000. They take up seven baskets after the feeding of the 4,000. Let me give you, I think, the greatest example of that story of the Lord filling our insufficiencies. It's in Second Kings. Look for the pattern. Look for our points. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. She's got a problem. Not enough. Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, empty vessels, borrow not a few. I don't have anything. I have a pot of oil. And she borrows vessels from all the neighbors. She brings them into her room and shuts the door. And then I love these words. And she poured out. What she had, she poured out. And every vessel was filled. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. He will fill our insufficiencies. Sometimes we come to the Lord and we, we say, Lord, I don't have enough wisdom for this problem. I don't have it. I need wisdom. And the idea is, would you give it to me? He's going to supply what I don't have. But usually he says, what do you have? Bring me what you have. I'll multiply it. Make it sufficient and give you beyond. Maybe I don't have enough strength, emotional strength. Maybe I'm dealing with a troubled child, a problem with a marriage. I, I have a calling that is beyond my, my ability. I don't have sufficient talents. But if I will bring him what I have, he will multiply it and make it sufficient and beyond. Jesus was sensitive to the lonely, to the marginalized. I call these the people in the sycamore tree. One of my favorite stories, even as a child, was the story of Zacchaeus. And there are some of the words in this story that I think are just marvelous. 
Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. Let me just take those two words, the press and little of stature. Now, I know little of stature means he was short. Okay? This is the story for short people. The press, all the people along the front of the road, and as Jesus comes through, they want to see him. And Zacchaeus is back behind. Now, why didn't somebody in the press open up and say, Zacchaeus, come and stand next to me, and we'll see him together? Because they didn't like him. He was little of stature, not only physically, but in their eyes, in their sight, he was little of stature. There are a lot of things that make people little of stature in our eyes, perhaps. Racial differences maybe make somebody little of stature. Back behind the lines, not up here in the press with us, what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring people, the beautiful people, right? Not the lonely, marginalized ones that are behind the press. Not the press people, the little of stature people. Maybe there's uh, people that are little of stature because of physical differences. They're too tall, too overweight, too short. Uh, maybe it's economic differences. They're not in the right class. Maybe there are personality quirks in them. They're a little obnoxious. There are Zacchaeuses in every ward in the church. They're behind the lines. He ran and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass out where. There they are alone in the sycamore tree. Do you know any sycamore tree people? Little of stature, alone, marginalized, unimportant. Now, of all the people in Jericho that day, who do you think Jesus is going to spend the day with? When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Jesus was sensitive to the lonely, the marginalized, the little of stature, the people in the sycamore tree, those who didn't fit in with the press. I had a very good friend when I was in college who when uh, the big dance of the year came up, asked a girl who was not in the press of beautiful girls. And nobody else would have taken her to that dance. Now he asked her, he bought her flowers, he got a limousine, he took her to dinner, he, he did the whole thing, the whole 10 yards, much to the amazement of almost everybody else. I asked him why he did that, and his reply was, she needed to go to the dance, and no one else would take her. There are Zacchaeus and Zacchaeuses that need to be invited out of the tree and into the press. Jesus was sensitive to them. Jesus was not confrontational. He was not combative. He was not defensive. He did not persecute. There is a story in Luke about the Samaritans. Remember, there was pretty deep animosity between the Samaritans. And he's already had his conversation with the woman at the well, a Samaritan. Well, this is another story about 
Samaritans and James and John. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Part of the argument between the Samaritans and the Jews was where you should worship. The, the Samaritans had their holy mountain. The Jews had Jerusalem with the temple. And the Samaritans are saying, if you're going to go worship in Jerusalem, we don't even want to see you. Now his disciples, James and John, saw this. They were indignant. You can't treat Jesus that way. And they didn't like the Samaritans anyway, right? And they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And I love this last phrase that ends the story. And they went to another village. How much pain, persecution, argument, debate, war, burnings at the stakes, inquisitions would not have come to pass had Christianity really understood this part of his personality. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Too often religions, and this is not true just of Christian churches, too often we disguise a lack of of charity for our fellow men under a cloak of zeal towards God. He was not combative. He was not defensive. He was not persecuting. And he had an ability because he was not that way. He, he would go to another village. He would just go to another village. Because he was that way, he won people to him. Joseph Smith said something really wonderful about this particular attitude. After having suffered years of persecution in his teenage, notice the true spirit of Christ in these words he remarks. Being of very tender years and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends and to have treated me kindly, and if they suppose me to be deluded, to have endeavored in a proper and affectionate manner to have reclaimed me, I was left. Notice those key words. Friends, kindly, proper, affectionate. That's the true spirit of Christ. Not persecuting, not defensive, not combative, not argumentative. When Paul was introduced in the book of Acts, he's introduced with a fairly interesting phrase. This is how he's introduced. Think about how sad it is that these words describing Saul also, unfortunately, through the history of religion, Christian religion, describe it too. And Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. How many times in the history of the world have people breathed out threatenings and slaughter? 
So in that attitude, notice the Savior's response to him. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, and again, I will never get the tone right to read these words. You imagine the most loving voice you can. Here is a man breathing out threatenings and slaughter, persecuting, disguising lack of love for fellow men under a cloak of zeal for God. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I can't read those words in a tender enough voice. I just can't get there. Jesus would change Paul with a voice of love and tenderness. And Paul would change the world from threatening and slaughter on that road to Damascus with that tender invitation, question. He would change Paul to the man who would write 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the definition of charity. I have the opportunity of doing a lot of travel. It's a great blessing to me. I'm very, very grateful for it. I have noticed as an American Christian, a Latter-day Saint, that many places in the world that I go, people get defensive. I can see their, their, their fists up, not ready to fight, but and just see it, because I'm of a different faith and a different country and a country that sometimes has its own image problems in different parts of the world. And I have noticed that if I will talk about the positive good things in the cultures, the religions of the countries that I go to, their heroes, I will watch those faces soften and they'll warm up because they realize somebody else favors their culture, has found good things in their religion, in their poetry, in their art, they'll just soften up and become wonderful friends. Too often we're defensive and combative. The Savior was not that way. I think the greatest compliment I ever received in life came in China when we had taken a group to China and I had been teaching Chinese religions and things. And at the end, I, I came to our guide, his name was Bing, and I said to him at the airport, Bing, I just love your country and your people and its history. And the philosophy and literature that's come out of it have enriched my life. And I want to thank you for making me a better person. And he reached out and he patted my heart. And he said, Chinese, Chinese. That's what we want to try and do with, uh, with all people. Uh, not call down fire, not threat and slaughter. But somehow in those oppositions that we sometimes face to be able to bring down prejudices and angers with that voice of tenderness that Jesus gave to Paul. We get a similar idea in a story in Matthew about the coin in the fish's mouth. Jesus avoided when he could giving offense. He did not insist on his rights. 
So we read this little story. When they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Now the tribute went to the temple, and the temple was his house, so he didn't have to pay tribute to his own house. Peter, however, says yes. Peter was defensive about the Savior. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute of their own children or of strangers? And Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Now he's saying, I don't have to do this. This is not something I have to do. And then the great lesson. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Wouldn't it be nice to pay taxes that way? I think the power of that story lies in notwithstanding. If we can avoid offense, let's avoid it. And that can be in the simplest of things as driving down the freeway. Sometimes I don't give somebody the lane who wants the lane. You do that. You know, my personality changes when I get behind a wheel of a car. That's just terrible. And sometimes I say, I have the right of way. The Savior would probably say, give him the lane. Notwithstanding. How many times would it be wonderful if there's a mess in the house and we say, I didn't make it. I'm not cleaning it up. He was uh, not concerned about rights. And he avoided giving offense when he could. Jesus did not wish to judge. That sounds strange. He was not judgmental. He took no pleasure in other people's sins and weaknesses. He was not critical. And he rejoiced not in iniquity, as Paul says, of charity. You sense that in the story of the woman taken in adultery. It's a very embarrassing moment. They've made this woman's sins public, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, we read, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, right in the middle of a crowd, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Notice how Jesus responds to this. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. I don't, I don't want to be involved in this. I'm giving you the chance to just go away. As though he heard them not. He did not wish to judge. I don't want to judge. How wonderful would it be if when somebody came to me with some, or you, with some gossipy bit of story, there's this, it's sad that there's something in the human soul, it's in me, I wish it weren't in there. That we, we take certain pleasure sometimes in hearing of other people's weaknesses and sins. There are whole newspapers just dedicated to it. Watch the nightly news. You will see this human desire to dwell, to probe into the sins and the weaknesses of other people. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in a metaphorical, figurative way, the next time somebody came to us and said, did you hear what so-and-so did? We stooped down and rode in the ground as though we heard them not.
I don't want to judge. I don't want to condemn. I don't want to hear about other people's weaknesses and sins. I sometimes uh, watch myself in what I choose to read in the newspapers. I can't read it all. And if my mind, if our mind, if our eyes go immediately to the more salacious story, to the story that probes into the weaknesses and the problems of others, rather than maybe the other kinds of stories, then I feel badly. I have failed a test somehow. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. If we are going to judge, let us judge ourselves. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I don't think he even wanted to judge those who'd brought her. Jesus uh, did not wish to judge. Later on, right after that story, when they leave, and he says to her, Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Joseph Smith translation adds this interesting phrase. And the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. Condemnation often brings alienation and deepens movement into sin. His was an invitation out because he didn't dwell on it. Jesus did not draw unnecessary attention to himself. He sought the Father's glory. He didn't play what sometimes I call, watch me daddy. We all play that game. When my children were little and they'd do something wonderful, and they would say, watch me daddy, watch me, watch me daddy. Do your children do that? Watch me daddy. And I would clap. I'd say, oh, wonderful. How good. Now, after a while, you don't play that game anymore. But some people into old age still play Watch Me Daddy. They do things to draw attention to themselves. Right? They, they want to be the center. Now, they want the praise of men. The Savior was not that kind. He didn't play Watch Me Daddy, if I can say it that way. An example. Remember the man that was uh, at the pool of Bethesda? And the angel would trouble the waters, and the first man in would be healed. And there is a man, we read, that had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now, how long would it take for somebody to rise and take up their bed and walk? Not very long, 30, 40 seconds max, right? But in that time, Jesus has disappeared. Later on, the man is carrying his bed. It's the Sabbath. The Jews stop him and saying, It's not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath day. And he says as defense, well, the person who told me to walk, who healed me, told me to take it up and walk. And they said, who was he? You know, what's the next verse say? Who told you to take up your bed and walk? Who healed you? 
And he that was healed wist not who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Often he said to people, don't tell anyone I healed you. He didn't stand around and say, my name is Jesus. Would you please go tell everybody what I did for you? Right? He didn't even know who he was. One of the greatest examples I can think of that is William Tyndale, one of my great heroes who gave us our religious language in the King James Bible. The King James Bible draws a great deal on William Tyndale. He published his first New Testament in 1526 without his name on it. They smuggled it into England, but he didn't put his name on it. And when later on he was asked why, he responded, The Savior told me not to let my left hand know what my right hand doeth, but to do good for the sheer sake of doing good. I just want people to have the stories in English of the scriptures. They don't need to know that I was the translator. We see an example of that in 3 Nephi. Who did Jesus teach the deepest, most powerful truths to in his visit to the Nephites? The high priests, the Relief Society, the young women. We read, it came to pass that he did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude of whom hath been spoken. He did loose their tongues and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things. Then this phrase, even greater than he had revealed unto the people. And he loosed their tongues that they could utter. So who got the deepest, greatest teachings of Christ to the Nephites? The junior primary. And then the junior primary taught their parents. There's a lesson there. There's a lesson in humility on that. Now as a teacher who sometimes team teaches, I'm team teaching now gospel doctrine my ward. Have you ever team taught with anybody? I look ahead and see if I get the good stuff. Huh? Did you do that? And I say, oh, oh, darn, that chapter. I want to teach that chapter. That's a good chapter. And sometimes I'm like, oh, this chapter is not a very good chapter. You can have that one. Well, who did Jesus let teach the great stuff? Not even himself. He let little children teach those greatest of all truths. When Jesus was burdened with heaviness, sorrow, or care, he turned outward to solace others. I think it is one of the greatest stories of the last hours of his life. Just preceding the last hours of his life, notice what he says. Now is my soul troubled. Keep that word in mind, troubled. He's going into his last hours and his soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. That's a window in the soul. He's opened his soul and let us in, in those words. He is troubled as he comes into those last moments of his life. Now he's sitting at the Last Supper, and he looks around at the Last Supper. What does he know as he looks at the men there? He knows Judas will betray him. He knows Peter will deny him three times. He knows that all the other apostles will leave him. He knows that within hours, at most, the weight of the suffering of the world will descend upon him in Gethsemane. He knows he will be scourged and crucified. If ever there was a man in the history of the world who needed 
somebody to comfort him because his heart was troubled. It would have been Jesus at that time. As he sits with this knowledge on his mind, he says again, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Verily, verily, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. It pained him deeply that Judas would betray him. And yet, as you go through the Last Supper and the last moments of Christ's life, who comforts who? Remember, our keyword is troubled. Some of the most beautiful statements from the Last Supper are these. But we have to read them knowing that Jesus' own soul was troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You can quote these to me. They're some of the most beautiful statements Christ ever made. But he made them when he himself was heavy and troubled. Later on at the Last Supper, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Later on at the Last Supper, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then he prays the prayer before Gethsemane. Now he is minutes from that atoning weight. It's already starting to descend upon him because he says to them as he arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane that he is heavy and amazed. He himself is amazed at the agony of suffering that is beginning to settle upon him as he understands human misery. But he prays. Notice who he prays for. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And for their sakes I sanctify myself. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. That's a magnificently beautiful prayer. But it's not for himself. He's not saying, Father, help me, strengthen me, I'm going through this. He is praying for others. He looked outward all through that. On the very cross itself, who was he concerned about? And you look at those famous statements from the cross. Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Concerned with his mother. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Concerned about the thief. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Concerned about the very persecutors, forgiving them in the very act. It's one thing to forgive when the sin is all over and the pain is gone. It is another to forgive at the very moment it's being done to you. 
Always outward, outward, outward. And maybe therein is a great lesson for us all in our own times of grief, when we are troubled and need solace, we would look to those who also are troubled and solace them. Jesus had a sense of his self. He never felt too great to serve in the lowliest of tasks. The disciples often had arguments about who was the greatest. The ways of the world, the greatest, are those who are served by the most. And you and I probably all had leaders who felt that the people existed to serve them. That's the worldly way. But the great leader, true leaders, understand that they are there to serve others. The disciples had a, a great deal of trouble coming to grips with that particular idea. They often argued about who was the greatest. One time when they were going along the way, Jesus asked them, What was it ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be greatest. They knew. To want to tell him that. Well, we were arguing about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last. And he took a child and set him in the midst. Now he took a child because the child in our existence here, the closest thing we can put our eyes on to what Christ is, is a little child. That's the closest, the greatest object lesson of Christ. He used a little child because a little child was most like him. And then when they are arguing still about who will be the greatest and who will have preference in his kingdom, at the very last supper itself they're arguing in order to show them that idea that you serve other people, that no task of service is too menial too undignified for the greatest of us all. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. The most menial of tasks. And then he said when he was done, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If I can do it, you can do it. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. The natural consequence, the natural result of realizing there is nothing too menial, too undignified, that I can't do it as an act of service. The result of thinking that way, Jesus is saying, well, one or two final points here. Sometimes when I look at the life of the Savior, I realize that I am a long way from being like him. I am not all those things I've talked about. I'd like to be. I'd like to pay attention more to the Zacchaeuses of my life. I would like to be willing to serve in even the most unimportant of tasks more. I, 
I would like to do all the things that we've talked about today better than I do them. And so it is very important that we know that Jesus developed grace for grace. He understands that we must do so also. He is patient with us. He will not be discouraged in our failures. He is not critical. In section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord really wanted us to understand that the Savior developed into what he was. And so he emphasizes one phrase. You'll hear the phrase. I'm going to read three verses. You can pick out the phrase. I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received the fullness. That's twice. Thus he was called the Son of God because he received not of the fullness at the first. Now see how much he's emphasized that particular idea. He grew, he developed. Section 78, the Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands prepared for you. And ye cannot bear all things now. But be of good cheer, I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, the blessings thereof are yours, the riches of eternity are yours. We'll get there, you're going to make it. We'll go slowly, patiently. Kingdom's yours. A number of years ago, I was working on a lesson in the Book of Mormon. I underlined in blue and red pencils, usually in my Book of Mormon. I was lying on the bed. I had a page open. My son, about five, six years of age, was playing with his trucks. He saw what I was doing, dropped the truck, ran into his bedroom, and picked up his own little copy of the Book of Mormon, crawled up on bed with me, opened his book, and began to borrow my pencils to color in his book. My children used to say, Dad colors in his, in his scriptures, so we get to color in ours. And he would color. He was Now, when I work on a lesson, I can get really deeply involved in it and not always be aware of everything that's going on around me. So though I was aware that my son was marking in his scriptures as I was marking in mine, I wasn't looking at what he was doing. About a half an hour later, when I got done with my lesson, I looked up to see his book, and he had duplicated my page. Every word I had underlined, he underlined. Every word I highlighted, he highlighted with the same colors that I had. I write little notes in the margin of the scriptures, and I had written a quote by Brigham Young, how the devil will play with a man who so worships game. So he tried to write that, but, you know, it was too much for his little hand to write. So he just wrote, how the devil. <laughs> That's all that was there. And he got the D backwards, so it really reads, how the beevil. Okay. Now, as he saw me scrutinizing me, how closely he had matched that. I was amazed at how closely he matched my book. I looked at him and he started, his little lips started to quiver and his eyes started to tear up. And I said to him, oh, McKay, what's the matter? And he said, my lines aren't straight like yours, Dad. He thought I was looking at his book with a critical eye. 
judging because his lines weren't straight. Now, as I study the life of the Savior, what he did, how he forgave, how he treated other people, his relationship with his Father, I try. And sometimes I look up and I'm afraid he's looking down at my unstraight lines and I'm ready to break into tears and say, Lord, my lines aren't straight like yours are. Now, do you think I cared as a father that his lines weren't straight? He will get the lines straight in time. And you and I will get our lines straight too. We'll become everything he was. All those things we've talked about that I admire so much in him and that I'm not yet good in as he is. We'll get there. We'll get those and all the other things in his life. In the meantime, he isn't a chastening God. Isaiah writes of him. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break. I love that. He won't rail and bawl you out and be critical. And sometimes I feel like a little bruised reed. A reed is a cylinder, and when you bruise it, you, it, it's very weak. And sometimes we're bruised reeds, and the tiniest critical remark will break us. He says, I don't break a bruised reed. He is not judgmental. He understands we must grow from grace to grace. He will be patient with us. He is not critical in those matters. Now, why can he do all those things and what is the power? May I conclude with this final thing that I admire so much in, in the Savior. And if we understand this quality, our life is going to be easier, more restful, and the burdens lighter. Jesus was always motivated by love in all his relationships. It was always love that he was motivated by. You see it in a number of different places. We read words like, And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John was called the beloved. The rich young ruler who we are often so critical of. Mark says, and Jesus beholding him loved him. Last Supper, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. And John introduces the last part of Jesus' life with the words, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. When I was a student at BYU and engaged, I was so head over heels with Laura Chipman that I can't imagine anybody being deeper in love than I was enamored with that young woman. And I had a, a professor who taught Shakespeare named Arthur Henry King. He was a great man. And he, had the, he, he was English, and he taught kind of the English system, which was small classes, very personal one-on-ones with people. And so sometimes he'd bring a little group of us students to his house and he would read poetry to us and ask us to read what we wrote. It was, it was a wonderful educational experience. And I was there once with, with Laurie, engaged in love. And he looked at me and he said, do you know what the greatest discovery of life is? It's the knowledge that the woman you love loves you. He said, that will change you. That will have a profound impact on your life. And I believe that. 
I have since come to understand there is an even more profound lesson. It is that the God I love loves me. Isaiah has the Lord speak to us, saying, Fear not, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. And when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. For I am the Lord thy God, thy Savior. Thou wast precious in my sight, and I have loved thee. Understanding that love, being motivated by that love, will change us all. I enjoy a, a black poet named Maya Angelou. Maybe some of you know something about her. She has, was uh, sexually assaulted as a little girl, I think about age seven. She didn't speak for five years after that experience, except to her brother. She had a very rough life. Other things happened, and finally, as a young woman, she was sophisticated. Um, she did learn to speak by studying poetry again, but her belief in God was gone. Mad at God somewhat. And she tells of the experience that changed her. These are her own words. One of my earliest memories of Mama, of my grandmother, is a glimpse of a tall, cinnamon-colored woman with a deep, soft voice standing thousands of feet up in the air on nothing visible. That incredible vision was a result of what my imagination would do each time Mama drew herself up to her full six feet, clasped her hands behind her back, looked up into a distant sky and said, I will step out on the word of God. I will step out on the word of God. I could see her flung into space, moons at her feet, stars at her head, comets swirling around her. I grew up knowing that the Word of God had power. In my 20s in San Francisco, I became a sophisticate and an acting agnostic. And one day my teacher, Frederick Wilkerson, asked me to read to him. I was 24, very erudite, very worldly. He asked that I read a section which ended with these words, God loves me. I read the piece. I closed the book. The teacher said, read it again, Maya. God loves me. He said again, God loves me. Again, Maya. God loves me. Again, Maya. After about the seventh repetition, I began to sense there might be truth in the statement. And there was a possibility that God really did love me, me, Maya Angelou. I suddenly began to cry at the grandness of it all. I knew that if God loved me, then I could do wonderful things. I could try great things. That knowledge humbles me, melts my bones, closes my ears, makes my teeth rock, and it liberates me. I am a big bird winging over high mountains, down into serene valleys. I am ripples of waves on silver seas. I am a spring leaf trembling in anticipation. So I don't measure up to all the things I've taught you today. I would like to measure up. But knowing that 
I and you are precious to him, that he loves us, will give us the motivation, the power to become one day all that he wants us to be. The first real testimony I had of Jesus came when I was a little boy, about seven years of age. I was sitting in the sacrament next to my mother, who had a beautiful singing voice. And the sacrament hymn that day was, More Holiness Give Me. Now, normally, I wasn't too interested in sacrament. I was wanting to get to Disneyland and Ponderosa, the Bonanza, when I got home. So when sacrament came, I fidgeted. But for some reason this day, as I listened to my mother sing, More Holiness Give Me, the words began to fill a, a, an empty place in my heart that was reserved only for sacred and special things. Nothing had ever touched that spot in my heart before, but these words went in and they touched that spot. And when she came to the line, more longing for home, I was filled with an intense homesickness for a place, but more for a being, for two beings. And then the last line, more Savior like thee. And I knew somehow that the secret to my returning to that place and those beings that I longed for was to be more Savior like thee. And I wanted to be like him. I went home that afternoon and there was an elm tree in our front yard. I climbed up in the elm tree and I sat there in the leaves and I quietly sang that song over and over and over again to myself wanting to go home and wanting to be like Jesus so I could go home. Sometimes we stand back and look at ourselves through memory. I stand back and I look at that little boy in the tree. It's, it's almost as though it wasn't me, that little boy. And there are times I wish I still was that little boy. Seven years of age, just starting out, trying to be like Jesus. No failures just wanting to go home and trying to be like him. And the Savior often says to me, I still see the little boy in the tree. Keep trying. May our burdens be light. May the next time somebody says to you and I, what's it like being a Latter-day Saint? We will say, oh, it is restful. It is easy. The burdens are light because of what we know about the Savior we worship. I offer that prayer for you and for myself. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This concludes this presentation of The Jesus We Need to Know, a talk by S. Michael Wilcox, produced by Kenny Hodges. Executive Producer, Corey Maxwell. This has been a production of the Deseret Book Audio Library.